Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. We are recording. We are recording. We're back again. It's November now with the emphasis on Burr. Yeah. It got cold fast. I mean, that, it was sort of like, you know, like the calendar's like, okay, it's October 31st, time to turn off the heat. You know, it's like the planet's been doing this for millions of years. Yeah. But, <laughs> but to hit it on that date is kind of telling. And then we, I love how the, the, the seasons here change abruptly. They, yeah. they tend to every every season seems to arrive like in a matter of a day or two right i mean like i said like last week um we were in our pool on saturday mm-hmm. not this week not this week turn the heat up yeah cover the pools rake the leaves that time of year what fun eat the halloween candy of all the kids that didn't come to your house this week do you guys get did you guys get kids at your house we only ever get like one or two groups that stop by. Yeah, what about you, Joe? We got zilch. Yeah, and I and and we had the the lights on and yeah. the Halloween decorations up, but zero. Is that typical for you guys? I I would think you'd have more kids on your street. Than- yeah, you would think, but um, for whatever reason, we don't really get trick or treaters in our neighborhood that yeah. much. Um, it's disappointing. Yeah, we never get them because we're like you know. There's no sidewalks. There's no street lights. We're like, you know, in the woods. Like, there's nobody coming up our driveway unless it's like, yeah. you know, somebody who's not somebody you want to deal with coming. To <laughs> when I was a kid, we left no house unknocked at. Yeah, right. And remember, there are always the houses where the people gave out full size candy bars. Oh like, yeah, everybody. Yeah. Those those were unicorns, definitely. <laughs> And we used to, when we lived in Pennsylvania, we lived on a street where I, we were talking about it on Halloween that one year we had so many kids that we ended up pulling stuff out of our cupboards because we ran out of candy. So we were giving out like granola bars and, yeah. and things out of the cupboard because we had nothing left. And you know, like, I mean, the rumor always was if you ran out of candy that those kids were going to come back and like destroy your house with toilet paper and shaving cream later that night. It's right. It was a serious concern. Very serious. serious. Oh, that's funny. Excellent. Well, we're back again. Um, And uh, we're giving Bill the week off this week. So that was Brendan O'Reilly that you heard at the top of the podcast. Hi, Brendan. Hi, Annette. Hi, everybody. I'm Brendan. I'm the deputy managing editor of the Express News Group. And also here with us today is Joe Shaw. Hi, Joe. Hey, Annette. It's Joe Shaw. Uh, I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group with the trademark squeaky chair. (laughs) Get a little room tone there, a little squeaky room tone that we can cut in. That's my squeaky chair when you hear it. Yeah, we're going to have to work on that. That's going to be my New Year's resolution is to get you out of that squeaky chair. So yeah, it's a goal. I, I apologize in advance. That's okay. I think people have come to like find it a comforting sound. When you hear it, you know that I've got something to say. That's <laughs> right. He's leaning in. Lean in. And I'm Annette Hankel. I'm the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And um, we were kind of tossing around different ideas to talk about on the podcast this week. And we decided we would just throw out an editor's choice where we just sort of bring up, each of us bring up a different topic to uh, to jump in on. So maybe I'll go ahead and start and we'll get the serious one out of the way first. Um, and that's the graffiti that appeared over the weekend, last weekend at Montauk, out in Montauk. And there was some, you know, anti-Semitic and um, not always spelled correctly graffiti and symbols that were placed on a couple businesses in the um, business area of Montauk, um, including a healthy food store. And then out at Ditch Plains, there was graffiti on the sides of a couple food trucks out there. So I don't know. I mean, I feel like, you know, when this kind of thing happens, our immediate thought is always oh they're probably just some stupid high school kids but do we think I don't know is that is that what comes to your mind when you think of you know it's funny because the first thing that came to my mind is I suspect that's what it probably is but that may be more troubling in its own way 
if this was the work of kids, because this was not just, I mean, there's a, there was a tone to the nature of the graffiti that was so much more chilling uh, than you, you know, than kids that are just being mischievous. Uh, I don't know which would be worse. Let's put it that way. I think it almost might be worse if it's kids um, because it would suggest you've got a real problem that, that, um, you have a generation of kids who aren't aware necessarily of the, the strength of those symbols and, and especially the time that, you know, in a time like this, they carry so much, so much weight of history. And I'm not sure the kids are aware of that. Um, so if that's, if that ends up being the case that it was just kids, then we got some work to do. I don't think it's kids. I, I, so. I don't have that impression at all. This was not huh. like a bored kid carving into his desk at school. This was not somebody in a bathroom stall at a high school uh, who are doing things that they don't necessarily understand the impact of. They're just trying to be subversive in a lot of cases. And not to say that there aren't, you know, high school kids capable of expressing that kind of anti-Semitism. But I think a lot of vandalism by kids is triggered by uh, stupidity and ignorance and not actual attempts to commit hate crimes. In this case, you had a Jewish owned business that was targeted. You had people write words that I don't, don't even want to say, but you know, they wrote uh, Jude and die. That's not like a high school prank. That's a very deliberate thing of somebody who knows exactly what they're trying to say, even when they can't spell it correctly. Um, and, you know, there was another message that was free Palestine, but the swastika and calling for people to die is an incongruous message with free Palestine. I think that's also part of the, the problem with the debate, if you can call it that, that's happening right now, is that, you know, there are, there are very clear sides to this, to this conflict, but you don't have to be anti-semitic to be pro-palestinian and in order to make that you know i think people people are making that crossover way too simply and i think it's i i think you know we can't have it seems like this isn't this is a situation that needs cooler heads and needs um sensible conversations and we aren't there uh, we aren't there here in America. So well, that's the other thing I was I was going to bring up is that there's already an undercurrent of anti-Semitism through white supremacy here that doesn't have anything to do with the Palestinian and Israeli conflict, you know. And so it's almost like there's these these individuals waiting in the wings, often hiding behind pseudonyms online and a lot of anonymous posting, who are sort of waiting for tensions to rise when they can come out and and do stuff like this. So I almost feel like it's a parallel narrative of anti-Semitism that has been with this country all the time. You know, the whole mm -hmm. thing that Jews control the media and Hollywood and, you know, Washington and all of that, those tropes that you hear about um, about Jewish people that's really homegrown and doesn't have anything to do so much with what's happening in Israel and Gaza right now, but it feels like it's a bit of a parallel narrative that they feel under the cover of darkness, they can come out and sort of start spouting this stuff again. I don't know. Does that seem accurate? No, I, th I think you're right. I think they're opportunistic. And I think, I think hate attaches to whatever it can attach to mm -hmm. uh, in the moment. And, and that's problematic. You know, I, I would like to turn the conversation, however, to the positive, if you can call it, you know, I, I don't know that there's any positive, but the response in the community in Montauk, I thought was very heartening. And um, I love the anecdote that almost as soon as the graffiti appeared, there were volunteers there scrubbing it off, um, that, they, that they just showed up to help scrub it off uh the business in particular but um and and then you had a, a you know a community that saw that it really needed to make a statement in response and so it turned out for that rally that that i i you know i just think that's that's the way you counter an incident mm -hmm. like that it's the appropriate way and a community needs to know that not only that it needs to come together 
but that it needs to take some kind of action in a very visible way to, to counter that. And they did. And, and I, I think that's, it doesn't make the problem go away by any stretch, but it's, it's the right response. And that rally was on uh, Monday, October 30th, I believe. And, um, and the, and the sort of village green there, Hamlet green, um, where lots of people turned mm -hmm. out, you had some, um, some rabbis speaking and you had other people in the community speaking out. So, you know, I was wondering, do we, do we feel like, like the story, like it's, harder out here to sort of have the dialogue because there is such um a limited muslim community out here you know like i feel like we we're well represented with the jewish community but you don't really we don't know that many people on the other side of the of the of the conflict and i just i've always wondered you know does it does it seem like we hear more of one side out here because of that and the lack of a mosque in this region or you know what i mean yeah, I mean, I think we have a strong progressive uh, mm -hmm. community out here, though, and, and they have been very vocal. And of course, they've actually formed a group now to protest, I believe, on a weekly basis in mm -hmm. Sag Harbor, uh, calling mm -hmm. for a ceasefire in Gaza. Um, I think that point of view is still pretty well represented out here. But you're right. I mean, I think I think we certainly do have some Muslim uh, people in our midst and uh, you know, I, I, what I really love is that the interfaith, uh, efforts, um, that the, the Muslim community out here isn't large, but it's, it's been accommodated by some of their, their, uh, fellow clergy have provided space for them to worship and, and, uh, things like that. So, uh, you know, but yeah, it's a, it's a fair point. No question. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's harder for people to know, you know, we just don't know that many from that community. Well, there was an event that happened recently that we do have an article about uh, by Kaylin Riley, which you could check out on 27east.com. Rabbi Mark uh, Schneier of Hampton Synagogue in West Hampton Beach, he had a gathering, uh, with, which was a discussion between him and his friend, Imam Shamshay Ali of the Jamaica Muslim Center in Queens. They met at the Beach Baker in West Hampton Beach with 30 student leaders from colleges in New York City for a discussion titled, New York Campuses Are On Fire, What Should We Do? And the on fire here is just the metaphor of uh, what we've seen with two sides of protests happening at various campuses since October 7th, where you have some pro-Palestine protests that have delved into not just anti-Israel messaging, but anti-Semitic messaging in some cases. And then on the other hand, you do have students on these, on maybe not uh, all the same campuses, but you have students on campuses rallying in favor of Israel and in defending Jewish people's safety. So this was a valuable discussion that happened right here in West Hampton Beach. I thought, I thought the great thing that, that one of the, the remarks that the Imam made in, in that conversation was how much the Jewish faith and the Muslim faith share as far as history. They, they really do have, uh, what's the term? Judaism, Islam, and Christianity are the Abrahamic religions. Abrahamic, that's what the word is, yes. And, and they share more than they have uh, different. And I thought that was really a, a, a really interesting observation by the imam. And I think those kinds of discussions, I mean, what, what's been fascinating to me to watch this from a distance, um, what's been happening globally, you have a lot of Jewish people and rabbis in particular who were speaking out in favor of a ceasefire in Gaza, which I think is is really really interesting. Um, in that it isn't so the the lines aren't so starkly drawn. Uh, it's a complicated complicated situation. Um, and I think it's getting to the point where, you know, permission to criticize Israel has always been difficult. And I feel like, you know, there have been issues with the Netanyahu administration. And that at this point, it seems like people have been nervous about criticizing that at all. And I feel like now in the aftermath of this, that people are going to probably take a deeper look at some of the issues that have plagued Israel in recent years in terms of their government, too. Yeah, and it's a difficult conversation to have in the wake of what happened on October 7th, which was just horrific. And, 
you know, it, it was not a standard uh, act of war, quote unquote. It was an act of terrorism mm-hmm. that resulted in a lot of innocent deaths. And in the wake of something like that, it's difficult to have the conversations that you need to have that that are legitimate about mm-hmm. how we got here and, and what both sides. It, it it is it is a real challenge. Uh and we're facing it locally, too, as you can see. I mean, I think this is uh, all over the world. We're having this debate and we're having it locally, too. And it's a real mess. Like, what's going to happen to Gaza after all, whatever happens? What's going to happen afterwards? Who's going to go yeah. in there and mop up the mess? And the anti-Semitism that comes out of this kind of a conflict shows up in acts like we saw in Montauk. And mm-hmm. uh, so we're not immune. These, these things don't, they're happening you know, at, at points around the globe that are far from us, but they're not that far from us. So speaking of not far from us, do we want to launch into our next topic, which is getting from there to here, Joe? Yeah, this was, I was really excited to have this express sessions event. And I thought, I thought it was a good one. I thought we had a good conversation about traffic. Um, Steve Ballone, who is the County executive uh, joined us for the conversation, uh, which happened earlier in October um, in Southampton. Uh, The County, Steve had come out and done a press conference in late August. I believe it was August 31st in Southampton, where he announced that the County was seeking ideas for ways to address the traffic problem that we all know exists on the East End and particularly on the South Fork. And I think the focus really is on County Road 39, which is the primary uh, conduit for traffic on the South Fork East to West and is a big part of the problem. Um, And, you know, we got into some details about that, but I just love when we get into a conversation about something like traffic, it brings up a lot of people have ideas. Sometimes those ideas are too ambitious to be, you know, they may be just out of our reach a little bit, but I think they're good to air because they get you thinking and they get you talking about possible solutions. And I still believe one of the things that came up in Charlie McArdle, who is the, uh, highway superintendent for Southampton town. Um, He brought up something that I've been saying too, which is I really think part of the problem is a police presence. And Southampton town is not staffed at a level right now where they can have a significant police presence to deal with traffic. And I wonder if you can make the pitch to the taxpayers of Southampton town that, hey, We are going to create a task force within the police department. We're going to hire however many cops that it would take to do it to address the morning rush hour, the afternoon rush hour, and to deal with when we have those accidents that cause the crippling uh, gridlock that happens all throughout the South Fork when you have an accident somewhere. That's going to be their job is to make sure that that they... uh, deal with those events and they keep traffic moving. I don't know that people wouldn't mind. uh, They would at least entertain the possibility of a little more tax revenue to pay for more police in that circumstance. I don't think it'll solve anything, by the way, but I think it's a step towards at least addressing it. And someone made the point at, at the event that when you see police actively managing traffic, it sort of makes you a little less angry because you feel like somebody's doing something about it rather than nothing. So when you say managing, how would that work? Is it just having police stationed at side roads and not allowing people to enter Montauk Highway? I'm just wondering what their role would be. Would it be letting people drive through lights instead of blocking the box at you know North, uh, North Sea Road? And just wondering how you envision those police officers actually moving the traffic. Yeah, it's a great question. I I think some of it has to do, I think it has to be combined in some way with adding lanes in one direction or the other at different times of the day. That was the Cops and Cones program back in the aughts 
which mm-hmm. sort you know worked. It was expensive and and required a lot of people and a lot of uh, effort, but it did help. Um, I think something like that has to be combined with it. Um, but I also think there is value to limiting the number of people who enter the main roads from side roads and also just managing, as you said, the blocking the box thing, like at County Road 39 and North Sea Road, that creates a problem all by itself. So there are things they can do. There used to be a cop there. There used to be a cop in the afternoons at 39 and North Sea Road, which when that gets gridlocked, that really has um, effects that reverberate. So I always liked it when I got to that light and there would be a cop there telling people like, stop, do not pull in. You're just going to gridlock. I need you to stop. I need to let them go. Disregard, you know, the cycle of the red light. Let's just all agree on doing something that's logical. That's not going to block this intersection and and screw up the north-south traffic too while we're at it. Um, and I understand if that was just a seasonal thing, but this past summer, I would drive at that time of day, making that left from North Sea Road onto 39, trying to get home. And there was never a cop there anymore. And it just yeah. seemed like such, such a wasted opportunity to make traffic that much safer. That's why I didn't make it to our company dinner that night in Hampton Bays because mm-hmm. we got to that intersection and we could not get through. We ended up doing a U-turn because um, we were on the north side of, of the highway and we ended up giving up and going home. So, what is it? Six to 10 times. A, I would say at least a half a dozen, but but I would say maybe even more than that times a year. So many people on the South Fork end up at five, six o'clock in the afternoon going, well, I'm not going anywhere right mm-hmm. now. I'm, I may as well go back into work and right. kill the next hour and a half or, or, or do something else because traffic just literally locks up when you have an accident like that. Um, it's, it's a devastating thing. But, you know, the thing that worries me is, and someone else made this point, um, off to the side, I think, during the, the discussion of the traffic is, what if we need to get out of town mm-hmm. if there's an emergency, if we have a storm coming? I mean, these are these are legitimate things we need to, to have a plan. And and I think it's odd that we haven't thrown any... I, I, Charlie McArdle, I have to say, has, has really done an outstanding job of trying some different things. And quite frankly... Um, I don't want to get Charlie in trouble, but I think Charlie has done some things, you know, that he probably should have asked permission from the county for before he did them. But instead of getting bogged down in the in the bureaucracy, he just went ahead and tried it. It's it's better to ask forgiveness than permission, I guess. Um, uh, He's been very aggressive about trying some different things. But one of the interesting things that came up in our conversation is there's a disagreement about what's working and what isn't because Mm -hmm. when they tried the flashing lights on County road 39, Jay Schneiderman made the point that their study showed it didn't help. It didn't really have a positive impact. Charlie says that he thinks some of that is the way it was measured, um, that he's not sure that, that that was accurate. So we don't even know what success looks like. And I think that's one of the things we have to fix if we're going to try and find some solutions moving forward. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks is brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton. They buy books, collections, libraries, individual titles. Very easy process. They handle everything. Do you have books to sell? Call or email today or visit SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations, including office positions. I also wondered, have there ever been any studies about the number of cars that peel off in Southampton before they even head into East Hampton town? I'm just wondering, like, how many of those work trucks, Hmm. you know, 
that how much of that traffic doesn't go past say watermill you know you know what annette um when they you know initially it was 2008 when they opened up the second eastbound lane on county road 39 and it was a couple of years later that they also added a lane to county road 39a so that's from the north from the north sea road intersection to watermill right mm -hmm. and i remember being there at a dedication and asking how much of a difference is this going to make because we're still one lane from watermill to montauk right and the statistic i believe it was uh jay schneiderman who was a county legislator at the time told me that the studies show that 40 percent of people are getting off before david white's lane okay that's interesting i mean i you know again, that was also more than 10 years ago maybe things have shifted a little bit but i but i i've always wondered that like how much of this traffic is concentrated there southampton village police chief sue hertow was on our panel and she pointed out that the village police recently got a, a set of scales that they're going to start to use and they have started to crack down on overweight trucks coming through the village and her numbers show that the vast majority of those trucks that they are stopping are coming from well to the west first mm -hmm. of all and that they are not coming to the village they are they are passing through the village to go somewhere else they're not supposed to come down to montauk highway and come through the village they're supposed to stay on county road 39 uh, but they're they're coming down. So it, it just shows, I mean, what I saw I, I, in the middle of the summer, we had an event in Sagaponic uh, in the afternoon and I went to it and left Sagaponic at about 530 heading back to Hampton Bays. And this was in summer in, in the height of the traffic. And I said, well, this is an opportunity for me to sort of experience it. So I, I decided to take the back roads, the best as I could coming back. It is amazing how every artery fills up all the way back. I came down North Sea Road and, and uh, I'm sorry, Noyak Road. Um, and it was full, you know, backed up all the way, all the way up almost to Noyak. Um, and then you come down and even the feeder streets that go on to County Road 39 are all backed up. Every single one of them is backed up for a mile and a half uh, leading in. Um, it just goes to show that that I, I and I think those feeder streets contribute to the problem because every car that needs to come in from a side street slows everything behind it on County Road 39. If all those cars were, were coming on County Road 39, that's too much volume, but it would probably move more slow, more swiftly. Um, I don't know. It, Wait, it's, Wade hasn't helped either. Everybody's got ways now, you know, and they're all, yeah. you know, turning on roads that they never knew existed. And um, yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely part of the, part of the problem. Well, one of the things that, that we have talked about, I think probably came up at the session. I love that whole idea of putting in those, um, those lane shifters. Oh, no, they used to have those on the Tappan Zee Bridge when it was called the Tappan Zee Bridge. I don't even remember seeing those things, those little concrete barriers and the little machine that could change the lane. So you'd have an extra one going eastbound one at one time and westbound at the other. Did that, was that part of the topic discussion at the session? Yes. They're, they call them zipper lanes. Zipper lanes. That's it. Zipper. They, they use um, uh, cones or um, balustrades of some kind that pop up and create, uh, for instance, they would create an extra lane going east in the morning and coming west in the afternoon. But the problem here now is where you start to run into the structural problems of County Road 39, that County Road 39 is neither fish nor fowl. It <laughs> is not a limited access road, but it's also not really a safe road to access the businesses on both sides. So you have a center turning lane, which is kind of necessary You've, you're going to have to have a center turning lane if you're going to allow people to turn in and out of those businesses. It's the only way to get into them. But that center turning lane, if you take that away on, you know, if, if you decide to make that one of the mm -hmm. lanes that, that you're adding to, what do you do with all that other traffic? And then it does want to turn into those businesses. It's, and there's no place to go sideways. You can't go wider. Uh, the, the, the corridor there for County Road 39 is very narrow 
And in order to widen it, it would be a significant investment of money and time. And well, if, if you did the New Jersey model, you could go with the jug handle turns, which seemed to work pretty well. I mean, you have to it go a little been an option, further sure. out of the way, but those, I always thought those things work really well, where you would just cut off to the right, circle around, come out at a traffic light to go the other direction. We just need to condemn a whole lot of private property. Well, maybe, but, but you already have a natural jug handle right at McGee Street there almost, you know, there's that little mm -hmm. street that goes behind. That would be an ideal jug handle sort of spot. Yeah. Um, the pro you know, the point was made at the event, uh, and I think it was, it was Bridget uh, Fleming who made it. You only really get one chance to do it right. Mm -hmm. And, and they missed the chance to do County Road 39 properly from the beginning. Uh, the county folks confirmed something I've heard for years, which is, the original plan was to have um, service roads that run behind, you know, off mm -hmm. behind those businesses. And then you could have limited number of accesses that, that you get back to those with something almost like a jug handle or you have mm -hmm. an occasional place to turn and you could light those intersections. They, they abandoned that um, well before it was created. So what we have is a problematic road and there isn't a whole lot. The, the solutions are all they they're all yes but solutions they they bring up new problems so um i love that the county's talking about it and they say they have four proposals they've already gotten from engineering firms so it'll be interesting to see what those what those proposals suggest this is Catherine Manu, and I'm the editor of the Sag Harbor Express and co-publisher with my husband, Gavin, of the Express News Group. Local community news matters more than ever, with misinformation spreading constantly across the internet. We live in the communities we cover. We are your neighbors, your friends, your family. We tell the good stories and, unfortunately, the bad. We focus on your triumphs and losses. But we can't do this without our subscribers. To subscribe, please visit 27East.com slash subscribe. And thank you for your support. I'm skeptical of the zipper lanes because if you're going to take 39 from two lanes to three, but it's still eventually going down to one, there's going to be a a horrendous bottleneck. And I remember when the bottleneck used to be a lobster inn and then the bottleneck moved to North Sea Road and then they moved the bottleneck to um, Watermill and Montauk Highway there. But there's a bottleneck at some point eventually and that backup will back up for miles. So I don't think that adding that lane is really the fix. You know, those days where we've had the yellow lights, I have noticed an effect. I, I'm... I was surprised to hear that we were told that it didn't move along cars faster. I actually think part of the problem with it was you had so many cops out there for enforcement of these yellow lights that people would drive up and see a bunch of cops and then they would slow down. And all these cops that are supposed to be there moving along traffic are actually causing everybody to slow down to less than the speed limit because they're seeing a ton, a ton of cops instead of just driving by a blinking yellow light and going That's about their business. I also wonder for, about the necessity of the blinking yellow lights. What is wrong with a green light? I understand that there's some people that have to get on making lefts, but as you've mentioned, people are sneaking through the back roads. They're saying, well, let me go this way. Let me go this way. I found this other clever trick to get around the traffic. And of course, they never actually found a clever trick. They've just created more mm -hmm. problems than they've solved. So people are trying to make a left from North Bishop, a left from Moses, a left from Hubbard. All of those lefts should be illegal from three to seven at night. Um, so people who are trying to get home, taking the highway like they should be, aren't being held up by all these people making these lefts, and those lights should be on extended mm -hmm. greens. I So much of the backup is just stopping for a red light that is only there to convenience a handful of people that need to make a left compared to the hundreds of people who could have just gotten on Sunrise Highway too sweet if that light wasn't there changing every couple of minutes. Do we think that roundabouts would be helpful? It's one of the things that was discussed. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that because of, I think Brendan's hit on it, that I, whatever we do, you're still going to have a backup at some point because it goes down to one lane at some point and 
this is this is a problem of volume. It's just a volume of traffic that that comes at those particular times of day. And by the way, the the other complicating factor here is there is a standard theory in traffic engineering that if you add a lane of travel to try and address the problem, it will fill up within eight to 12 years. And we saw exactly that with County Road 39. I mean, that's almost exactly the timetable that the added lanes to County Road 39 then just filled up with traffic. Because what ends up happening is now it becomes more convenient. So more people take the, 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 yeah. their vehicles. Um, it's just the way traffic works. It's, it's, you can't build your way out of a problem like this. The other thing that I think we need to acknowledge is these are limited time problems. They're really at only a couple of hours a day um, in the mornings and in the evenings. And again, I want to stress the third leg of that stool is when we have an accident. And that is significant because I think that's when the problem is worst. Uh, and I feel like they talked about the fact that the county and the town have gotten together and changed some of the policies when there's a serious accident, I understand they have to close the road because it's a crime scene or a potential crime scene, at least. Um, and I understand that, but there isn't really a plan to deal with that when it happens that 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 can stop this from traffic getting, you know, happens every time it happens when there's an accident. And I just wonder, do you, do you remember in the old days back when the Millstone nuclear power plant. I don't know if you remember that when there were a lot of organizations trying to shut that down because it's only, you know, eight miles from us or 10 miles, whatever. And the idea that there was ever a, a, a release of nuclear energy from that, that trying to get us off of this part of the island um, would be impossible. And I remember that whole evacuation thing was sort of the, I think even Fred Thiel was sort of trying to help out with that, you know, as far as pushing the um, Department of Energy, it's like, to shut Millstone down or regulate it more because of the fact that getting all of these people off of here was an issue. I mean, that yeah. was like the best argument that we had out here um, was the whole evacuation route. It, just exactly what you were saying earlier. Like if we had to get out of here. It's it's scary to think about. It really is. I mean, right. I, you know, yeah, we're like jumping a boat. What are you yeah. going to do? I should, I should mention too that, that the other part of the conversation was about um, public transportation. And that plays a real right. significant role in this. And what I'm intrigued by is the idea of whether or not there's a way to set up um, places where worker work trucks can be parked overnight so that workmen from the West and Nassau County or, or Western Suffolk County can then take public transportation out and still have access to their tools and vehicles and everything. And of course, the big question there is security and, and right. you need to have something that's that's not far from the train stations. There's a lot to make, to make sense out of that, but it's an intriguing idea to me because I, I suspect- yeah, it might be worth hiring a security guard to be there you know, 24 hours a day or, sure. or even have like little locking bays where your truck is, yeah, I, you know. Yeah, a lot of companies would jump on that, I think, because it's going to save them a lot of time and and money uh just that's being wasted on their crews sitting in trucks sitting in traffic right. exactly all right good so um i think we've have we have we uh exhausted this oh we can keep talking about this for an hour i we fixed I've, it we fixed it <laughs> we've got it figured out. i just love that we're talking about it at least it's a conversation yeah. um and i think having the express session sort of stokes the the embers a little bit uh let's hope excited to hear what balone has to say too about the proposals they got that they like scary thing now of course is that steve balone's going to be out of office so somebody's gonna have to pick up that ball and run with it i know so and when do, do we know when they were going to reveal the plans that they had gotten no but i think it's coming up before steve leaves office at the end of the year so we'll okay. at least get a get a glimpse at that all right so stay tuned for that all right, Brendan, your turn. Well, I want to speak briefly about the third quarter reports for Hamptons Real Estate, because uh, if you've been trying to buy a home, you've probably had a lot of trouble. If you've been trying to sell a home, it's not as fast and easy as it used to be, considering the interest rates that we have right now. But 
it's a good time to be a seller because there's a lot of people out there who are looking, who are just waiting for the right house at the right price to come on the market. So I spoke with Todd Borgard from Douglas Elliman, from with Ernie Servi from Corcoran and Jonathan Miller from Miller Samuel Real Estate Consulting and Appraisers. And we discussed uh, the third quarter Hampton reports that Jonathan Miller prepares for the Elliman report. And we discussed Cor Corcoran's own findings. And what we've seen is the number of sales has been down and not just down um, compared to the pandemic years, but really just down. It's a low market in terms of sales volume. But even though the sales volume is down, inventory is not piling up and prices are not falling. Generally, if sales are down, you would see inventory piling up because houses aren't moving and you would see prices really start to dip. But there's a couple of reasons why we're not seeing that. One, prior to the pandemic, we would have about 2,000 houses on the market. Now we have about 1,000 houses on the market. So with half as many houses on the market, you're not going to see pressure on people selling their houses to lower their prices because they still have something that's rare. They're not in competition with uh, a ton of other people who are desperate to sell their houses. So between inventory being low and interest rates being high, that has really suppressed the number of sales. You can't have a lot of sales when you don't have a lot of inventory. It just doesn't work. If interest rates were still low, we would probably see prices continue to climb. We have seen prices dial back, but prices have actually not dialed back all that much in the scheme of things. If you look at the median sales price for the Hamptons over the couple of years prior to the pandemic, what you've seen is it go up and down between approximately $800,000 and a million dollars. Up and down, up and down for a few years and sales have gone up and down at the same time. Now, since the pandemic, the median sales price has gone up and down between approximately $1.3 million and $1.6 million. Right now, it stands at above $1.4 million. So until more inventory comes on the market, you're not going to see, see even the possibility of the, the median price really falling down because that low inventory is really going to keep that median price up. So if you are looking to sell still, putting your house on the market now is not a bad idea because as long as there's low inventory and there's buyers out there waiting for the right house to come on the market, you're in a good position. I'm curious, what would change? I mean, is there any chance it'll change that we'll suddenly have a lot of inventory? Because yes. there's not there's not that much. I mean, people are not putting their houses on the market now because interest rates, I think, are discouraging right. that, right? Yes. So right now, interest rates are the highest that they've been since 2000. It is above 8% to get a 30-year mortgage. So let's say during the pandemic, you bought a home with a mortgage of 3%, or maybe you refinanced at two and a half or 3%. Would you really sell your house that has a 3% mortgage to upgrade to a house that has an 8% mortgage? Or say you actually want to downsize because your kids have moved out or something, right? Well, you would downsize, but you would be paying the same amount in a mortgage payment because instead of paying 3% interest, you'd be paying 8% interest, even though your balance is smaller. So people are not listing their houses the way that they normally would. Houses are just not circulating the way that they normally would because people have really latched on to their interest rates. Mm -hmm. The story had mentioned, even though there's a lot of cash buyers, that those cash buyers are also affected by interest rates. I wonder if you could talk about that. So one of the things with cash buyers is they might lay out $20 million to buy a house in cash, but then after the fact, they might finance that house because when interest rates were 2% or 3% or 4%, you might want to put your house up as collateral and get a $20 million loan because then you could put that $20 million into the stock market, earn an average of 8% interest over time while you're only paying 2 or 3% or maybe 4% on the debt you're making money on that 20 million instead of just 
uh, holding on to that asset. You're essentially leaving money on the table by not financing. You also had during the pandemic, a lot of people were paying cash for expediency. You had somebody who was selling a house and they would get six offers. And maybe the top two offers are the same exact price, but one person says, here's my offer contingent on attaining financing. And someone else says, here's my offer, I'm paying cash. The person contingent on financing might need a couple of months to get their mortgage approved. The person paying cash can buy your house tomorrow. So a lot of people were paying cash for the expediency, even though they might go back and finance it later. And also just buyers are conscious of what the stock market's doing. They're, they're conscious of the fact that when interest rates are up, um, stocks tend to be muted, company profits tend to be muted, people in general are more hesitant to spend so the economy doesn't uh, go off like a rocket ship like it started to do uh, for a couple of years before inflation caught up with us and the Fed had to crack down on inflation by raising those rates. So even those cash buyers are conscious of interest rates and affected by them. So I'm just curious though, what, what would have to change for the situation to change mm -hmm. locally and, and, and have any kind of significant impact on the market here? So if the interest rates now that are 8% trickle down to 6 or 5%, you're going to start to see people say, I could tolerate going from a 4% interest rate to a 6% interest rate because I'm at this point where I'm making more money, my family's bigger, I could afford that bigger Hamptons house. So I'm going to sell mine and I'm going to trade up to something bigger. And when those existing houses start to circulate again, it's going to be because interest rates went down. And the irony, of course, is then everybody's going to rush to do that. And that will start to push prices down, which will make people rush to do it even faster because they want to get it before the prices fall. And and you could you could start to see a whole different dynamic taking place. Well, low interest rates could really support high prices because uh -huh. when interest rates are lower, people have more buying power, right? So there's a huge difference between buying a million dollar house at 4% and a million dollar house at six. The difference between four and six doesn't sound like a lot, but in your monthly payment, that's huge. So when interest rates are 6%, maybe you can't afford a million dollar house. Maybe you can only afford an $800,000 house. So interest rates falling are actually going to support high prices, even though adding the inventory to the market would, by laws of supply and demand, support prices falling. So there's so many things at work here. And because we're in a luxury market, a second, a second home market or a third home market, we don't follow a lot of the rules that the rest of Long Island plays by. You know, the rest of Long Island, they their turnaround on a house for sale would be two months. And they would consider four months slow. We consider a turnaround of four months to be fast in the Hamptons market. Just by the nature of the market, things take a little longer to sell. But it doesn't mean that it's a worse market to be in than Long Island by any means. And obviously we're on Long Island, but the way they refer to things, they kind of cut off the North Fork and the Hamptons as their own thing. And they leave the rest of the Nassau and Suffolk and call that Long Island for the sake of keeping statistics. So is there any hint that the feds might lower interest rates anytime soon? So they just declined to raise them, which the stock market responded to very favorably. The most recent um, employment numbers showed that we added a bit more than 100,000 jobs, but that was lower than expectations. And it is a sign that the economy is cooling, or, or at least that the jobs market is cooling. And if the jobs market is cooling, that gives the Fed a reason to say, we could start to lower interest rates again. The thing is, they're, never, they're not going to go down to pandemic levels unless we have another global crisis like that. There's no reason why they would ever go down to, to two or three percent other than a crisis. But maybe they're they're going to start going down a quarter of a point between four and six times a year. And two years from now, maybe we're going to have high fives or low sixes. So is there any chance that the war situation around the world could end up impacting interest rates? If the U.S. got drawn into a conflict that 
indicated that our country was going to go into a recession, we would see the Fed act a lot faster. Okay. Take it to the bank. They take it to the bank. Well, thank you guys so much. This was a very interesting conversation, I thought. I kind of like when we do these these editor's choice topics. It sort of gives us an opportunity to jump around a bit. Yeah, we could cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. I, and I like hearing from about different topics. Covering a lot of ground. Definitely. Unlike trying to get West or East during rush hour on the East End. Yes. And if you want to know more about our express sessions on the South Forks traffic woes, we have the full-length video of that express session posted on 27east.com. And in your podcast feed, you could also find the sessions report, which has an abridged version with some editor commentary of that express sessions. Excellent. Tune in and drive on. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27east.com, and sacharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.